Okay, well, good morning. I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 this morning. We're in a portion of Scripture that uh, Pastor Nick alluded to last week, and, and I often call the, the black velvet backdrop. And I will expound on that a little bit more. But first we're going to read. We're going to read uh, Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 18 and continuing on through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 1 beginning in verse 18 through the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Boy, Father, just, just reading through a portion of Scripture that describes human beings 
when they try to untether themselves from you is just such a tremendous weight. But Father, it's against that weight that the glory of the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ shines brightly. So Father, I pray that this passage would have its proper weight in the souls of the hearer and in me. I pray that your spirit would guide my words and open the ears and the hearts of those who hear those words and that you would apply them exactly where you'd have them applied according to your infinite wisdom and your divine plan and purpose for your people. So Lord, be with us now. Show us. Reveal yourself further to us in and through your word this morning. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. As I said before, we are in a portion of Scripture I call the black velvet backdrop of Scripture. I remember, and, and the reason where I first became familiar with the black velvet backdrop was when I was a young teenage boy, and, and my life at that point was not pursuing things I want to talk about in church, but the Lord saw fit to bring a woman into my life named Melissa. She's over there. There you go, embarrass the wife, check. So being kind of a know-nothing 19-year-old, I go into, it's, it's a, I think it might have been Valentine's Day, and I go into a jewelry store with my pockets full of $32 on some odd sense, thinking I'm going to knock the world out and show this woman how serious I am. So I, I remember the the expression of God's mercy found in the salesperson who didn't address me as the idiot I was. And he, what he did was, he took this, he, he says, what are you looking for? I said, something that has like a diamond in it. Like I had no concept about what's going on here. And he didn't flinch. And he just took out this big, meticulously folded up piece, piece of black velvet. And he's just taking his time asking me questions about Melissa and about what I'm looking for. And, and it becomes apparent to me as he's doing that, I ain't looking at that. I'm looking at the prices of things that are in the case, and I'm like, I'm in the wrong place. I should be buying like a couple pounds of salami or something with the money that's in my pocket. So anyway, he, he gets this piece of black velvet out, and he puts it out, and he just slowly, slowly starts modestly, and he puts these little shiny shiny gems on the black velvet. And I asked him, I said, well, what's the purpose of the black velvet? He said, well, the black velvet makes the gem shine even brighter. It makes the gem shine against the real dark backdrop. I didn't buy her anything that day. Did I? No, I don't think I did. No, she doesn't remember. She's like, what are you asking me for? Stop talking to me. You're preaching. I, yeah, I, I but I do, I mean, it's weird. I don't remember what happened with that transaction, but I remember the black backdrop of velvet. And when I read this passage today, I keep thinking, especially when we get to 18, verses 18 through 32, it's the black velvet on which the gem of the gospel sits to make the good news of Jesus Christ stand out with such vibrancy like a diamond. And as you noticed, I began our reading in verse 18. I could have started in verse 16, 
Could have started in verse 8. Could have started in verse 1. But I began in verse 18 because it's important to remind ourselves how the passage we're going to look at today, verses 28 through 32, fits into Paul's argument. If we were to take a step back further from verse 18, we would see that Paul is telling the church in Rome, which is made up of Jewish believer and Gentile believer. As I said in our preaching team meeting, those of us sitting here in 21st century America cannot possibly understand the tension existing in a church that is made up of people who were raised in the law of Moses and then converted to the Jewish Messiah sitting beside people who came from a Gentile background with no such learning in the law of Moses. And Paul says to this group that he is under obligation to preach to the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and the foolish, verse 14. And that he's eager, eager to preach the gospel to the people in Rome, verse 15. And what he is under obligation to preach, what he's eager to preach, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Why am I eager to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why is everybody who's up in this pulpit eager to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Verse 16. The righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. For contained in this good news, contained in this good news, and, and listen to this. This is, this is astounding. Contained in that good news is the answer to the question, how is a sinner, how is a rebel, how is a completely righteous person ever forgiven by God? How is a completely sin-stained human being ever to be declared perfectly righteous in God's sight? It is a gift given by God by faith. The good news equals a great outcome. Then in verse 18, which we started reading today, Paul contrasts the revelation of God's righteousness in the gospel with the revelation of his wrath upon the ungodly and the unrighteous, particularly in this section, focusing on pagan Gentile nations. And in this section, Paul goes between past tense, these things have happened, and it's being revealed now. So we can assume that what we hear today is a pattern that carries on and will carry on until the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Paul tells us that God reveals himself through his creation. His pastor, Pastor Worley, talked about God's perfections in the law and the perfections that we are supposed to imitate. God's perfections are clearly seen in what he has made and it should make man fall down on his face in worship and in thanksgiving and in repentance as he's faced with the holy, mighty God. It's in creation. It is so evident that we, we don't have any excuse at all. But rather what happens is man takes that truth that is clear and evident and he suppresses it. Why? Here's why. I'm glad you asked. Because of the fall. In our Awana class and Awana teaching, 
we've been focusing on how has what happened to our first parents, Adam and Eve, affected us? And what happened in the garden really affects us. Because of the fall, man has been affected so greatly that he will not, he will not have a God to rule over him. They know he exists. Paul says so in verse 21. But they stow him away deep down. They deny him. They, they buy all sorts of preposterous notions about how this perfectly ordered creation came together. And I say they, I mean me, before God saved me. This is a creation that must have been made and made by a wise and perfect creator. And man, as the image bearers of God, is created to worship. He's created to worship that wise and perfect creator. But he doesn't. He suppresses that truth about God, but there's still this instinct to worship and into that vacuum of the desire to worship steps the self, where man becomes the determiner of truth. And he's still got this urge to worship, so that worship turns to something. Mortal man, birds, animals, creeping things, verse 23. How does God then respond when he's rejected, when he's suppressed, when he's forsaken for God's God made in man's image? Well, before we answer that question, we have to take a moment and understand the depth of the impact of the fall. Because of the rebellion in the garden, every human being born after our first parents, Adam and Eve, are born with a nature that is sinful, that is rebellious. I, I remembered, I've shared this, I, I share this almost every time. I, I, I don't even remember what I say anymore. So if I repeat myself, just shake your head and say, yeah, that's a good story, Pastor. So I remember teaching a, a parenting class when I was at, uh, teaching at the alternative school. And I, I had to get into the parents somehow uh, a biblical view of, of humanity so they could parent their kids well. And I remember saying that kids by nature are, I didn't use the word sinners. I said rebellious, rebels. And I was getting some pushback, and I said, well, let me ask you a question. So you're pushing back against, I get this, you're, you're, I, I understand why, we, we rush to defend our children, and I understand that. I said, at what age did you teach your child how to lie? And there was silence in the room. And I said, that's exactly it, you don't need to. If you're sitting there, and you're hearing a baby shriek, you're thinking someone's stabbing the baby. No, they just want the bottle. From the youngest of ages. It just flows out of us. It's part of our nature. And after the garden, this corruption grows and grows to the point just before the flood. You've heard this verse a ton of times if you read the scriptures. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Now while we can argue about the scope of that statement after the flood, 
One thing cannot be argued. It's this. It's this. Listen, this is my whole point. God, in his kindness, restrains. He restrains the full expression of man's fallen depravity. Because if he didn't, if he didn't, we would consume ourselves and kill ourselves and civilization would end. We have to understand that to understand verses 24 through 32. Because removing that grace that restrains sin is one way God displays his wrath. It's one way he reveals his wrath. And Paul, in the book of Romans, speaking particularly to the pagan Gentile nation, says that God reveals his wrath by giving them over. So that's removing, removing the grace that restrains. Allowing them to go their, the way their fallen, sinful inclinations would have them to go. And because of the futility of their mind and their foolish, sin-darkened hearts, that's verse 21 language, the people not only engage in such sins, we celebrate them. They desire to proclaim loudly as man's greatest accomplishment that the self is fully free. Free to do what I want. Nobody tells me how to live. I'm free at last. And in reality, that's a frightening place to be. Those of us who know God and those of us who believe his word to be true know that that actually is the judgment of God. Certainly not anything to be celebrated, but rather mourned as the consequences are catastrophic, both here and now and eternally. Paul talks about this judgment coming in the form of a giving over to the lusts of their heart to impurity, verse 24, which manifests itself as a dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, Paul talks about this judgment coming in the form of a giving up to dishonorable passions in verse 25, which manifests itself in homosexuality. And then in verse 28, Paul brings up a third giving over as an expression of wrath. Verse 28 reads, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So, so it's in the mind, what God does is he removes the grace that restrains the fallen human mind and allows the human mind to just do what ought not to be done, ultimately do what it wants to do. So now remember, remember what Paul's goal is here. Paul's goal is to show that everyone, he's going to get to the Jews in chapter 2, everyone 
is in desperate need of the gospel. Everybody is in need of that diamond. And that's why he's making that black velvet backdrop as black as it could be. Everyone soaked in sinful, filthy, rebellious unrighteousness needs the righteousness of God that only comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 28 tells us that his expression of wrath involves the mind. He's already dealt with the mind in verse 21. For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And here he continues on with the, the mind. And here, all right, crossway people, cover your ears, but the ESV translation is just not a debased mind. It's helpful if you read other translations to get at that word. I don't, I don't use the word debased very often, thankfully. Um, NASB says depraved. Christian standard says corrupt. Legacy standard, a newer translation of the NASB, says unfit. But the idea behind that word, the idea behind that word is disqualified. Literally, not passing the test or standing the test. And it's actually, verse 28 is, is you'll see if you read some, some comments, especially Greek comments, it's a hard verse to translate because here's the idea. Here's the idea. When Paul says at the beginning of verse 28, and since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, the idea is that, that man puts God to the test and God fails that test. God is disqualified in man's eyes. Nope. Pass! And what God does in response is he gives man over to a mind that doesn't pass the test. A mind that is disqualified. God is disqualified in man's eyes. He is not worthy to assume the role of God in man's life. Why? Because man wants to be the God. God doesn't meet man's expectations. Both cannot be the God. So either the one true God must go or sinful self must go. And in the sinner's heart, it's the one true God. And just as man disqualifies God from being in his mind, God gives them over to a disqualified, debased, and worthless mind so in essence, so here's my, here's my real loose four-year-old class translation, right? It's, it's, you don't want me. You don't want me. I'm not worthy to be acknowledged in your life. Have at it. And as a result, as a result, the, the, the mind that is untethered by God, or from God, rather, the mind that just kicks God out of all of its thoughts, the results of that are catastrophic. Now we say, what, what, what is it disqualified from? One, one commentator says that the mind that God gives man up to is so debilitated and corrupted so that it's quite unworthy to be a guide in moral decisions. 
So, so, so God gives man up to a mind that is disqualified. It's of no worth when coming to make moral and ethical decisions. He, now see if this sounds familiar. See if this sounds familiar. He gives, he gives man up to a mind that has no objective standard of truth. No code by which he can determine what is right or what is wrong. What is good, what is bad. Each person begins to act according to their own truth. They begin to act according to what pleases them, what benefit comes to them with absolutely no thought of God and no restraint from God. Truth becomes relative to the person and the circumstance. That's verse 28. I didn't do an outline, forgive me. But if you had one, it'd be verse 28 and 29 through 31. Because what happens when God gives up man, gives up a society, gives up a culture to a debased, depraved, disqualified mind? I have one word. I have one word, and it's chaos. Chaos. This is the word that keeps coming to mind when I read verses 29 through 31. 21 adjectives that describe the outworking of a mind untethered from God and given over to itself in all of its fallenness. There are numerous ways you could look at this list. I'm most persuaded by the view that the first four of verse 29, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice, are categories, and the rest fill out that category, those categories. You might see different. That's fine. But the point is a mind that is detached from the God who created, a mind that is detached from the God who alone is worthy of defining things, a mind detached from the God who rules, a mind that is detached from the God to whom we will give an account is bent towards these responses. And these words describing the chaos in 29 through 31 are pretty self-explanatory and shocking. It's helpful to read through them in a couple translations because little nuances come. Um, most need little comment. Insolent in the ESV. Ugh. Maybe violent. Might be better, but a self-serving violence. Paul uses it in 1 Timothy 1.13 to describe his life before Christ. But what you see in this list when we're untethered from God is we see this description of a culture, a society, a humanity that is dark, that is brutal, that is uncaring, that is calloused, that is violence. Disobedient to parents is a fascinating one there. That would strike both the Jew with their high view of the law and the Roman Gentile as Rome's dealing with disobedient children in some cases even more strict than the Jews. The family structure 
is one of God's intending, intended building blocks of society. That's why he created them male and female and said, be fruitful and multiply. Both homosexuality and disobedient to parental structures tear down those building blocks. We could also see this list in light of the two greatest commandments. When man fails to love God above all things, he cannot help but not love others. Because he's focused on loving himself primarily. I say that because all of these words here, if you look at verses 29 through 31, affect others in some way. Now, let's, let's, climb, into, let's climb into the den of deceit. We're going to get back out. I'll, I'll leave a ladder. But we'll understand, in part, what the enemy, the God of this age, who's constructing in our, in our time, but in, even in this time, and in all times till Christ returns, He's constructing a system in which the debased mind is applauded and it's something to be, it's, the outworkings of the debased mind is something to be sought after. So while the, the rallying cry goes like this, here it is. Let's live in harmony. Let's live in peace. We could do it. We could build the Tower of Babel. We can do it. But you know what we got to do? We got to get rid of everything that divides us. You know what really divides us? Religion. If we could just throw those things aside. I'm, I hear every time I say this to myself, I'm thinking of Psalm 2 language here. We just need to get rid of the things that divide us like God and religion. That's the cry. If we do those things, we will all naturally gravitate toward, together towards oneness, towards unity, towards peace. The problem is, no matter how much we say love, peace, and harmony, it just ain't possible. Actually, the opposite happens. It's actually love, peace, and harmony my way, as long as it doesn't step on the God of me. Man was created to live in relationship with God, to live in this world in light of God, to live with God in his thoughts, to live with God fueling his desires, to, to live with God guiding his actions. And when man refuses God his proper place in his mind, God gives him over to the horror of what life looks like without that God, and it's chaos. And it's chaos, in this case, when God judiciously gives over as an expression of wrath, it's a fullness. God ain't filling the gas tank up halfway. If you look at the language, verse 29, they were filled. They are full. You don't want me? <laughs> Have at it. 
in all of its fullness. When everyone is left to operate in this world according to what they desire most, and it's not God, it becomes unlivable chaos. Oh, but there's more. Look at verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So there's three things in that verse. They know God's righteous decree, but yet they continue doing the things in verses 29 through 31, and they give approval to those, not just who fall, fall prey to the things in 29 through 31, it's, it's to those who practice those things. So we think of Christ's words, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice lawlessness. The first thing we note is that even unbelievers know God's righteous decree. We've spoken about for several weeks from this pulpit that they know there's a God because of his clear revealing of himself in creation. But also we know that because of the fact that they are created in the image of God, the righteous God, they also know the precepts of God's law. We're going to get to Romans 2, 14 and 15. I think next week it's going to speak about that. Every, everybody's got the works of the law written on their heart. They know it's wrong to murder. They know it's wrong to disobey parents. They know it's wrong to have another God ahead of the God who created them and sustains them. And their conscience alerts them of that guilt and sense of judgment. But they keep on doing it to their own destruction why? Because of the fallen, overwhelming desire to be the God. And the God of self will not allow anybody to have rule over it. So they continue doing them, despite the fact they know it's wrong and worthy of death. But not only that, they approve of others that are practicing it as well. Societies and culture under God's wrath, the, God, the wrath of giving over, start to approve and celebrate the chaos that is evidence of that wrath. I'm saying that again. Societies and culture under God's wrath start to improve, approve and celebrate the chaos that is a sign of being under God's wrath. That is a sign of a mind that has been given over to its debaseness. And part of that judgment, when, when Christ says, he says so many things that, it does, it, I guess it makes sense because he's God, right? But he says things that are so incredibly prof profound and are, are, are uh, for use in so many situations. You will know a tree by its what? Fruit. So what will happen is, is that 
we're supposed to say, huh, this fruit's terrible, that tree's bad, I'm going to use a different type of seed. That's what we're supposed to say. But under the judgment of God, there is an unwillingness of people to open their eyes and look around and simply ask the question, how's it going? How's it going? Rather, they press on, seeking to stamp out any reference of God, or God forbid, an appeal to objective truth that governs everybody, which is the only way that we could actually call something right or wrong. This, brothers and sisters, is the judgment of God a revealing of God's wrath upon an unrepentant, truth-suppressing, self-idolatrous people. Sound pretty glum, chum? I think so. That is a black velvet backdrop. But it's supposed to be that way. Because remember where we are in this letter. Remember where we are in this letter. Part of Paul's argument is to show that everybody is guilty and in need of the gospel of grace. And to reject the revelation of God in creation, the, the revelation of God in the works of the law written our heart, in our hearts, and to reject the revelation of the gospel of God in Jesus Christ it's catastrophic. It's already catastrophic. And it ain't going to get any better. This is why Paul says he is under obligation to preach the gospel. He is eager to preach the gospel. He sees the darkness, but he has the message of light. Unless... Unless the Jew reading this letter gets puffed up, the universal guilt and universal need for the gospel of grace includes the Jews as well. Verse 9 of chapter 2, and I won't preach Pastor Worley's message, there will be tribulation distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But it is against that backdrop of the darkness of such a giving over in wrath to a truth-suppressing humanity, the gospel of grace shines like a diamond against the black velvet backdrop. So what do we do with this? Those of us sitting here in padded pews in 2023, what do we do with Paul says... So number one, we simply ask the story, where are you at? We ask the question, where are you at in this story? Are you still attempting to be the God? Do you believe that you are ultimately the determiner of truth? The God who, who clearly has revealed himself in the creation. And for those who come week in and week out and sit under the authority of the word, 
and hear about the Creator God, our sin, and our rescue in Jesus Christ, do you look at all that and say, you know what, God's still not qualified to be the God over my life? Maybe that's you. And we know that right now, no matter um, how nice the clothes are, how good the perfume smells, how cool our house is, life is hard when you're an enemy of God. And that war can end by turning from your desire and want to be the God and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who came to pay the debt of our sins so we could be forgiven and give us the righteousness of God. And then the Holy Spirit takes space inside of us and all of a sudden we start living imperfectly, but we start living as though God is really the God. And we start living as we were created to live. So if that's you, repent and believe the gospel because you're in great danger. Your rebellion, your autonomy, your being true to yourself, being genuine, is the highest virtue being applauded by our culture. Don't fall for it. If you're there and you say, that, that used to be me, but I've run to Christ for rescue, revel in that rescue. Appreciate, appreciate the gospel diamond. Live your life in light of it. Preach it to yourself. Realize that we're, we're there not because we're smarter than anybody else, because we have been saved by God's sovereign grace as an expression of his love for us. And if he loves us enough to send Christ for us, what will he not do for us? So number one, where are you in the story? Number two, if we view this right, it will keep us from an us versus them mindset. And to do that, we have to realize that we still have a remaining sin nature. 29 through 31 I see those things in my life still. And, and I'm up here preaching God's word. We all have areas where our remaining sin nature that wants to remain the God bubbles up. We all have areas of our lives that we refuse to turn over to God and allow him to rule over that. Could be how we spend our time, how we entertain ourselves, how we spend our money. I mean, we can go on and on. But that perfection, be perfect. So thankful for that reading this morning. As your Father in heaven is perfect. We must be asking the Spirit of God to constantly be saying, show me the dark corners of my heart where I still want to be on the throne and let me believe, let me believe that ceding those things to you in your proper place, that's best. I feel like I'm losing something, but I'm not losing anything at all. Number three, this passage gives us tremendous insight into what's happening in our culture right now. This passage gives us tremendous insight into what is happening in our culture right now. 
And we must not, and we must not adopt a, yeah, this is what you get, mentality. That's not the heart of Christ. Rather, 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 we should be grieving for our culture. Grieving for folks who are living outside of a relationship with the God who created them and whom they will stand before someday. We should use this passage to help us be a wise and discerning people. The Lord Jesus, right, is shrewd as serpents and as harmless as doves. We should use it for the reason Paul wrote it, to show people the absolute disaster of trying to live disconnected from God and push them towards the gospel of grace as the only solution in the purpose of Jesus Christ. Oh, I got a fourth. Write it down. Wait a minute. I'm going to lose my Baptist Union card. I don't, I don't have three points. My fourth. Use this passage to remember what our mission is. We are called to be salt and light. This afternoon, put them, just read over Deuteronomy 4, 4 through 7. I remember when, when I was here the first time and I'd go preach a different place, I'd always preach, always preach. I remember at Rock Valley preaching this when Steve Brandon was gone. Deuteronomy 4, 4 through 7. We are called to be salt and light in, an, in, a, in, a, in a culture that growingly is practicing lawlessness and applauding the practice of lawlessness. God's law will show itself in a wisdom and a righteousness in our lives. We are called to be salt and light, so our lives, when we're living a, a clean, confessed walk with the Lord, will manifest joy, peace, hope, purpose, and meaning that everybody's trying to use godlessness to get to. We got the genuine article in Christ. Our lives should be the antithesis, the opposite of those 21 words used in verses 29 through 31. And we should shine like gospel diamonds. Christ is the diamond. Shine like diamonds against the backdrop of our black velvet culture. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us to do that. And I'd invite those leading us in music and Serving the supper to step forward. Hey, Father, it is so weighty. On one hand, Lord, we, we see the horror of your wrath. And Father, we we confess that that wrath, that wrath is rightly deserved. And we who are in Christ this morning maybe see it more clear than anybody because you, by your grace, have opened our eyes to it and you showed us the path of rescue out of it. A righteous Christ on a cross So, Father, I pray that the darkness of sin and the 
horror of the revelation of your wrath would just sink in. That you would keep us sensitive, hypersensitive to just how insulting, how odious, how, how hated sin is in your holy eyes. And against that backdrop, it would make us love Christ more. It would make us cling to him by faith more. It would make us live our lives for him more, realizing that we only got a few years here and someday back to him. So Father, help us. And for those who came in here this morning not knowing Christ, in the delusion that somehow they could stand judgment over you and either qualify you or disqualify you, Father, I pray that by your Spirit and for your glory you would break that delusion. The horror of life apart from you, though they've denied it and suppressed it, would be like a jagged edge in their side right now. And they would see the glory of the solution found in Christ vividly, so vividly they could taste it. So Father, we commit that to you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.